Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about a lab-grown diamond shakeout, increasing transparency, and the future of AI. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from LA, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. Happy, happy New Year. Happy, happy New Year, yeah. Yes, 2023. 2023, I mean, here we are. Well, actually, not quite technically here we are because we're still in 22 recording this. But when you're listening to this, it's 23. And I hope it'll be a good start. I can't believe it's 23 already. It feels like a futuristic year somehow. Something yeah. about the odd digit at the end. It already feels like we've been vaulted into some future we're not prepared for. I mean, maybe that's every year. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was, uh, I was saw something on uh TV, this is a long time ago. Somebody said, uh, you know you're getting older when the, the new years start getting closer together. And uh, I definitely feel that. Yeah, we were just here. Just, yes. here, just, just the other day. I know our, our children don't have that sense of time yes. yet, but we sure do. They're still excited. Yeah. Well, I like New Year's. I, you know, as far as holidays, I always like New Year's because it's just, it's just a celebration of kind of something silly. You know, it's like, okay, the calendar changed and we're just going to get up and two things and get drunk and stuff like that over over something that's you know fundamentally not such a big deal but you know hey well, let's just have a party over it yeah it's a collective fresh start yeah fresh start or a new start and renewal and trying to change some of your habits uh that's i think that's good yeah me too me too i i can't say i i feel like my new year's used to be more exciting they're pretty unexciting these days i don't tend to travel for new year's i don't tend to go out much sometimes i'll go to a party but so the new year in and of itself never feels all that momentous but the idea of the new year is always a good one and there is something nice about a blank slate even if it's just in your mind let's look ahead let's look forward and and that's in fact what we're going to be doing this episode we're going to be talking about things that we think are going to be important for the jewelry and watch industry to reckon with in 23 and what lessons we might draw from the recent past to inform our near future i feel like looking much farther ahead than 23 is a fool's errand because the pace of change is so quick and unexpected things like pandemics always complicate the picture. So I think looking ahead for the next calendar year sounds like a reasonable thing to try to do. And beyond that, we can just respectfully decline to say, right? I mean, looking ahead to 2030 or 2028, even 2020. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not trying that. No, exactly. I mean, there's not a lot of recourse for us if we get things wrong, but we still like to feel like we're pitching in and talking about ideas that we really do think are of value and of will be of interest and relevance to our listeners. So, well, I should say also, I, I did find a, a list of predictions for 23 with links to various articles backing up those predictions. And one of them is that the pandemic will end in 2023. I guess um, AsianNews.network published a story that a team of analysts from Lanzhou University estimated that the pandemic is likely to end globally in late 23 with infections worldwide reaching at least 750 million. You know, I have never tested positive for COVID. Oh my 
God, who never? are you? Yeah, I know. It's weird, huh? I'm sure I've, I'm not saying I haven't gotten it, but I've never, and you know, my son has gotten it, my wife has gotten it, but I have never tested uh, positive. Wow. Well, that's, you're, you're like a unicorn over there. I guess so, or something. But uh, I mean, I think people are starting to look at COVID as something that's manageable, that hopefully won't have the same death toll, and that won't be as disruptive to our lives. Amen. Yeah endemic and hopefully as unremarkable as a flu. I mean, nobody likes to get the flu, but nobody stops everything in their life for it either. And uh, I think that will also make the jewelry market come to be a little bit more normal. I think You know, certain habits that we've gotten over COVID are probably here to stay as far as, you know, a lot more working from home, probably a lot less travel than there was in the past. But I think those things are going to keep picking up. I think people are going to start to want to get back into their normal schedules. Yeah. I think the jewelry industry, really 22 seemed to be the year when when we got back to normal. And I think all those pandemic era conveniences like curbside pickup and things in and obviously just a much more digital first market, all that stuff makes sense. And I think lots of jewelers, in some ways, COVID was was very good for that that aspect of their business, you know, just forcing them to rise to the occasion and offer customers the things that they would have wanted anyway. So I think all those things are are in some ways very good and will last. But in terms of distancing and masks and all that stuff, I mean, we may need masks here and there when out, you know, we COVID cases tick up. But as a rule, I think people have very happily left all those sort of measures behind. And yeah, and, and clearly we saw that the business thrived like never before throughout those years. So the end of the pandemic is clearly welcome, at least as a global health threat is very welcome. But I, I already think in some ways it, it ended a while ago in our business in, in terms of the way most people think about it, at least in, in whether or not it interrupts their business flow or not. I think the business is so much healthier also from a financial standpoint in that you've had companies that are coming off two good years. And, you know, there were a lot of big companies that were in shaky financial shape going into this. And uh, now I think a lot of them are a lot healthier. They have cash reserves, they have goodwill and, you know, better, uh, you know, consumer records and better data as far as the consumer. So a lot of companies are in a lot better shape than they were going into this. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, maybe people are switching back to some of their older habits and buying more than they need and sort of overspending on inventory and so on. But I do think you're right. You know, people have pretty good balance sheets coming out of the last couple of years and we're in a good place despite inflation, despite all the complicated global economic factors that are weighing on consumers in the U.S. and consumers globally. We're all in pretty good places. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot to celebrate about the way the business handled the pandemic. And as it comes to a close, there's a lot of optimism about what that means for just being out in the world and celebrating and choosing baubles that will, you know, you will adorn yourself with as you celebrate and just get back into the swing of things. So yay, yay for the end of quite a three-year run. What else? What else are we seeing for 2023? So about a month ago, I guess, I I wrote this article after talking to a lot of people in the lab diamond business about how there's going to be a shakeout next year, how a lot of people, uh, you know, prices are continuing to fall. Not everybody is comfortable with that. Not everybody can make money on that. You know, so the days of the big margins in lab-grown diamonds 
I wouldn't say they're over, but they're they're starting to to peter out. I think demand is is still strong. I think it will, by all accounts, it's it's that sector of business is continuing to gain market share. But from everything I hear, and you know, I wrote that article, and not one person disagreed with the fundamental premise, which is that a lot of people are going to leave the business. That you know, this is a, a market that really blossomed during the boom years, but may not be able to sustain some of the rates of growth and some of the big profits it had during kind of a slower time. So a lot of people are expecting a lab diamond shakeout, and that you know, this industry, you know, as prices continue to fall and you know the the diamonds get less and less expensive, the industry is going to have to think about what kind of communications it puts out there. You know, what kind of price points it targets and just kind of really rearrange itself. And the, I'm not saying the natural diamond industry is doing great because it, you know, it also has a lot of challenges and it's also probably going to, I don't know if it's going to deal with a shakeout, but it's going to, you know, it's, it's definitely going to have some challenges also. And it's also dealing with falling prices and things like that. And in fact, one of the reasons the lab prices are, are falling is because, you know, lab grown diamonds are priced based on Rappaport. So the more the natural prices fall, the more the lab uh, prices fall also. But we're, we're starting to see things like 95% off wrap, 96% off wrap. I wrote an article about how somebody's a joke, even, you know, prices diamonds at 100% off wrap. I mean, that was done as a, as a joke, but I think there was a serious um, message behind that, which is, you know, this has become a, a race to the bottom. So uh, most people expect to have see some kind of shakeout in the new year, and uh, it should be interesting. I mean, you know, things have rapid growth and it doesn't always sustain itself. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. With over 130 years of experience, the De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides expert online and in-person education across the diamond pipeline. Their range of courses is designed for all students, from industry newcomers to well-versed veterans seeking more specialist knowledge. Starting with their diamond foundation course and advancing to polished grading, synthetic diamond detection, and a range of specialist deep dive courses, they have all your education needs covered. Visit institute.debeers.com to explore their current courses. You know, you talked about sustainability and obviously that positioning is something that lots of lab-grown companies use, whether or not they're using it in a way that is actually legitimate. I think those questions will certainly, you know, we talked about 22 being a year where greenwashing was going to be put to the test and people were going to be looking for sort of proof that you're doing this, the things you're, you say you're doing, that you're saving the emissions. You say you're saving all that. Um, more and more of that for sure in 23. I recently met a couple of young women who, one was at Harvard pursuing a degree and I don't know exactly the name of her degree, but her point of study and focus was really kind of sustainability science. And her job was to poke holes in sustainability reports. You know, those kinds of impact reports that you see lots of companies putting together, putting on their websites. In fact, JCK published a story about six months ago where we advise retailers on how they might do the same thing. And it's important to do that, but it's incredibly important to make sure you're not just putting it up there to look good, that there's actual value and research and science and numbers 
news. And that kind of transparency, that kind of reporting will in fact become law and will become institutionalized in the coming year, at least in Europe, where there is legislation that's been passed. It was passed in November by the EU called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. It is one piece of a many-part puzzle of legislation. It doesn't have a lot of enforcement mechanisms attached to it, but those are coming. And the idea is that sustainability reporting is going to be on par with financial reporting. In that, it actually doesn't matter if you're a private or public company. So long time, you know, long time companies in this space, there lots of them are family owned, they're private. They have declined to talk about these things. They haven't really felt too much pressure to publicize their efforts. And now they'll have to, according to law. This is in Europe, but it also applies to companies that do business in Europe. So if you're a Tiffany, you may be headquartered in the US. Well, actually, you're, I suppose, headquartered in Paris with LVMH. But um, if you have any business in the EU, you're going to have to answer this. Now, it, you have to have a certain threshold in terms of your revenues and your you know, number of employees you have. It's, it's for law larger companies. But the idea is that, you know, if if you have a significant size business, you will be responsible for reporting on your supply chain. And so this idea of transparency, and it, it's fascinating to me that luxury, for a long time, luxury goods companies, the very notion, the whole wide collective world of luxury, really thought there was something kind of gauche about talking about this stuff. Oh, luxury brands, they don't talk about kind of what's going on in the kitchen. They just do it. And there's a mystique around how it's all done, but customers eventually trust that the luxury companies are doing the right thing. Well, that time has come and gone and Gen Z will ensure that your words are not enough. And I think that's all very important and very good. We really can't just trust you anymore. It's just we don't live in that age anymore because everything else is transparent. We have a lot more transparent pricing on the internet now. I mean, it all, I guess, began with the internet some 25 years ago. Now that we can all go online and figure out what things are supposed to cost and where they're coming from, there's just a lot more expectation for information. And so that's happening in all marketplaces, you know, in all different ways. We talked a little bit on our last episode about the pre-owned watch market and what the Rolex announcement that it's now certifying, you know, it's pre-owned watches for sale at select Booker locations. And that's expected to expand to other authorized dealers in the who knows how near future. I mean, that's all bringing even further transparency to uh, a market that has just been pretty wild west for, for a while now. Just as a counterpoint, I, I went to a very, very high-end, very well-known retailer in LA yesterday called Just One Eye. And if you've ever been through LA, it is a spectacular retail space. It's not just a jewelry retailer, although they have incredible amounts of very high-end jewelry in their showcases. And it's a real feather in your cap as a jeweler, I think, to have them as as one of your accounts. And I can't say enough about their curation. I mean, they're one of the most expensive stores I've ever walked through, so it, it's a little daunting. But, you know, they've got beautiful artwork and lots of spectacular clothes and accessories. But one thing that really, really bothered me as a consumer and as just a window shopper was that there was not a single iota of information in their showcases about any of the jewels, not a name of a designer, certainly no prices, no details at all not a single detail. And if there were just a QR code next to their pieces that I could scan with my phone and have the information I needed, I'd be thrilled. 
as a rule, on the whole, as retailers out in the world, please give your customers more information. They are asking for it. And if you don't offer it, they're just going to go to the next retailer who is happy to offer that. And, you know, we had a great interview with Paul Schneider from Twist, and they offer those QR codes right in their cases. And I can't say enough about how valuable that is. People want more information. They seek it. They expect it. They demand it. It is just the way the world is. So transparency as a sort of a theme for the future. Yeah. And I think, I mean, regarding sustainability, one thing uh, that has been kind of a criticism of the whole ESG movement is that, you know, there's not a lot of benchmarks or established ways to report information that it needs to be standardized a lot more. And that's why you're seeing a lot of what's called greenwashing. I mean, the typical sustainability report is this kind of very glossy document with like a bunch of trees on it. And, you know, it says all the great things that people are doing and it's not necessarily audited or there's not necessarily any outside people looking at it. But ideally, you want something similar to what you get at the grocery store when you buy a product and it lists all the calories and it lists all, you know, the percentage of of fat and, and all that. And again, not everybody looks at that. Not everybody will look at sustainability ratings, but to the people who it's important to, it is, uh, you know, people do look and I do look when I buy things, you know, about how many calories it is. And, you know, usually I'll buy it or eat it anyway, but I I feel a lot guiltier after that. But I think it's something that's going to be increasingly important and that it's something that's going to be benchmarked. And uh, the uh, Federal Trade Commission has said that they're going to start the process of revising their green guides this year. So again, there's going to be a lot of, I believe, pressure and a lot of governmental and consumer pressure on companies to report these things in honest and forthright and easy to understand and non-marketing oriented ways, because that's what people want. The more important this becomes and the more climate becomes an issue in people's everyday lives, and it certainly is starting to be, the the more we're going to start to see pressure for honest information, which is good. It happened years ago. Well, amen, 100%. And I should just say just this morning, I received an email from a marketing professor I've interviewed in the past. She, her name is Felicitas Morhart. She's Swiss and she's a marketing professor at Business University in Lausanne in Switzerland. She specializes in luxury marketing and she just shared with me a new academic led initiative to increase transparency in the in the luxury industry. Basically, it's something that they're calling, and I'll tell you what it is. It's a company called Origin All collaborating on a new public-private partnership that is measuring transparency and traceability initiatives across the luxury sector. Apparently, Breitling is the first brand that's signed on. And I do want to give a shout out to Breitling because speaking of sustainability reports, they published their second sustainability report in the fall, in October. And from what I understand, based on a few conversations with people who do specialize in assessing these things, it was pretty darn good. It admitted where the company does not know yet what, you know, either where it's sourcing things or what those impacts are, but it had various stakeholders. It had various critiques included. It named its suppliers. It went well above and beyond what most Swiss companies have done in terms of their own transparency and their own um, acknowledgements. So I think if you want a good example of kind of the direction we're all headed in, go check out Breitling's sustainability report. Right. And there's also, I believe it takes effect uh, in 2023, a corporate transparency law 
law, which is not, uh, you know, where companies do have to reveal who owns them and who's the beneficial owner. Now, they don't have to reveal this publicly. They just have to reveal it to banks if it's requested. But the fact that this information is now going to be made available, at least on request, is considered uh, a big deal. I, I personally believe it should be you know, made available on a public basis, but that hasn't happened yet. But, you know, that's that's a, a big change. And again, that's all part of the larger theme of transparency that you need to know who these people are and who you're dealing with and who owns you and make judgments uh, based on that. Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. You know, one other thing I, I want to mention, and I, you know, I feel like a noob talking about it because it's a great big wide topic that we're all starting to encounter in more obvious ways, but it's how artificial intelligence is changing, impacting the jewelry and watch industries. You're not on Instagram, Rob, or rarely on Instagram, but you might have seen a flurry of people posting selfies that look kind of sci-fi and fantasy-like. And there's an app that's gotten a lot of attention called Lensa. It uses AI, basically takes 20 of your headshots and distills them into, you know, these fantasy shots. Sometimes people end up looking quite beautiful and quite remarkable and, you know, sort of heavenly. And other times they have like a third leg that they didn't realize they had. And so the software is, you know, not flawless, but the Times did a story on it because I kept seeing all kinds of these selfies appear in my Instagram feed of people who'd been using this app to try to post whatever these crazy pictures of themselves. I even downloaded it and then realized I had to pay. And I was like, eh, I don't care that much about how I... I mean, there are now apps that can think one that kind of writes a song parody and one that writes articles. I mean, which is scary, of course, for us. Oh, yes. In fact, I've spoken to retailers who have tried using it. And in fact, I've read articles that were written by AI. You know, in fact, I read a book review that was written by AI. And honestly, it was it was a little scary, a little formulaic, maybe, or just the language wasn't as unusual as you might expect from somebody writing at a high level. But yes, all this is coming. We're all interacting with it in ways that are seen and unseen. You know, I mean, clearly the algorithms powering our Netflix choices and our chatbots and all the things we kind of engage with on a daily basis as consumers, all that is AI. Maybe we recognize it, maybe we don't, but now it's just coming to the fore. And so I have a lot of, I mean, I suspect AI will become a much more, a bigger conversation in the jewelry industry, just as it's becoming a bigger conversation in the wider world, what that means for how we design, how we produce, how we source, how we distribute. I mean, all the big groups are using it. They're using it to fine tune their production. They're using it to figure out their distribution, to send goods to markets where those markets are hungry for them versus just sending a bunch of jewels to a store that you're not entirely sure needs them. So we know AI is being used by those groups, whether they're a lot more reluctant to talk about how they're using it to design. But we do know prototyping. I mean, that is a process that AI can take down from days and weeks or, or hours at least to, you know, minutes. You can generate 3D prototypes in seconds, really, once you've given the right prompts. And I think we'll start seeing companies hiring for these skill sets, these very nascent, very sci-fi skill sets like prompt artists and data set curators, you're going to start seeing those job postings. And I'm not sure how one might become an expert at something that's that brand new, but you'll see that people are going to be looking into that. And soon enough, I think people will stop feeling, at least in the very traditional jewelry space, maybe 
some shame around that. You know, there's some shame around just how much technology you employ in this business that's really prided itself, you know, on being a handcrafted old school business. And I think we'll start to see that shift. There will be pride taken in being an expert in the latest cutting edge technology. So just a heads up that all of us will start grappling with what it means. I mean, there are threatening implications and very optimistic implications, and there's all kinds of ways to look at it. Right. And and one of the stories I recently wrote for JCK Pro was on using artificial intelligence in diamond grading. And that's something that, you know, all the big labs like GIA's lab, De Beers lab, you know, most of the, the big labs are experimenting with it. Serene, which is the big equipment and machine manufacturer, they are definitely going big into it. And they claim they now have devices which can measure the four C's basically using their machines and you don't even have to necessarily send it to a lab. I mean, the conventional wisdom is that labs won't cease to exist simply because people need to look for treatments and, and synthetics and things like that. And, you know, one of the things that I heard a lot during the reporting that story was that humans are very adaptable, whereas a machine uh, needs to be programmed. It, it can spot an inconsistency, but not necessarily know what to do with it because it's, you know, it's a machine, right? So, and that is something that could have huge implications for the traditional diamond pipeline. If people can just cut a diamond and then get it graded by a machine and then sell it. I mean, that's, that's a big deal as far as how the traditional pipeline works. So yeah, I, I think this is something that's going to have a big impact going forward. And it's fascinating. I mean, diamond grading is, is something that I, you know, it's obviously a very specialized skill. And I think not every diamond can be graded by machines. I mean, there's not, in some cases, it's not necessarily the reference diamonds available to, to really grade them by machines. But going forward, I think a lot of diamonds will be graded by machines. And it's not it's it's both uh, interesting and exciting and also a little scary. Yes, the the machine age is upon us. It's happening, so everybody just needs to start reading up on it and all the other big topics we talked about: lab grown shakeout, transparency, AI. So twenty three, we're we're kind of ready for you. Do, sort do of. you have any New Year's resolutions? I would like to travel a little less, actually, which is kind of wild. I've Interesting. Mine, mine is to travel more. I want to go to the office more, which I haven't been doing, and I want to get out more. I'm still in that COVID era habit where you kind of the default is to stay home. And, you know, it didn't, I didn't, you know, we used to, as a family, we used to go out and every weekend, especially during the summer, we'd have like a big adventure where we go out, do something in New York City. And we don't necessarily do that as much anymore. And I, I would like to, and I'd like to see more people face to face. Well, I look forward to seeing you in 23 and yes. I look forward to seeing well, all everybody. of our listeners and um, everyone a happy, happy new year. And happy new year. Happy, healthy. And hopefully uh, be peaceful in New Year also. Oh, my God. Fingers, toes, hairs are crossed. All right, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.